Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to be at the end of Acts 15 this morning, uh, verses 36 to 41. Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin, and who rose again, who defeated the grave, and is able to accomplish more than we can imagine, more than we can think. I praise you that Because of him, we need never worry about death. We need never worry about eternity because you have granted us all things in Jesus Christ. We praise you that we are more than conquerors because of him who loved us. Father, we pray as we study your word this morning, help us to understand it. We confess that often in our hearts and our minds, there is resistance and rebellion. Often there's just distraction from the weak. We pray you would remove those things. Open up our minds. Let us understand what it is you have to say. Give me clarity as I speak to speak well and truthfully from your word. I pray move in our hearts that we would obey and then empower our hands and our feet to serve you. We thank you and we pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, my wife, Shannon, and I just celebrated 13 years of being married this past week. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Uh, It's exciting. I mean, it's not like 50 or 75, but it's more than one, so we're doing good. Uh, I feel good about it, and... uh, You know, I feel like the Lord has blessed our lives immensely. We've got three reasonably nice kids, you know, they're good, and uh, we get along well, you know, but early in our marriage, the, the first year or two, one of the things that I found surprising on some level was that although we both really wanted to know God and wanted to walk with Christ, uh, we sometimes had conflict. And uh, I was probably like some of you that I thought, man, if, if you really are trying to walk with the Lord, if you really are both serving him and hoping to do that, you're going to get along great and you're not going to argue, right? My parents argued, I knew that, uh, but you know, I, I'm probably better than they are and uh, that's not going to happen. To me, well, that illusion was shattered within the first month of our marriage because I found that uh, if you are a human being who cares about anything, the odds are good. You're going to experience conflict. Let me tell you about our first argument. Uh, It happened on Valentine's Day. I know, I know. It is, this is the saddest story you're ever going to hear, all right? (laughs) Happened on Valentine's Day. about almost exactly one month after we got married, we got married January 15th, Valentine's Day, we're getting ready to go out, and uh, my mom calls to wish us happy Valentine's Day, and in the process of this phone call, she says, hey, by the way, 
your grandmother did not yet receive a thank you note for her wedding gift. Now, if you uh, have had friends who've recently gotten married, you know that most of the first two or three months, most of your free time, that's what you do. You write thank you notes to people who gave you gifts, right? And so uh, we had been writing these notes, but I guess it either gotten behind or forgotten to write one to my grandmother, who was quite a proper uh, older woman. And she mentioned to my mom, I didn't get a note. My mom mentioned to me, and I mentioned it to Shannon and uh, said, hey, we probably better go ahead and write that note. And she said, well, I have a system and I'm getting to it and I will get there, but I just have not gotten to write that note. And I said, look, let's just write the note to my grandmother, call it a day, move on. It's not that big deal. She goes, no, it's the principle of the thing. Your mom doesn't get to call and tell me when to write notes. So I go, well, look, it's not that big a deal. All right, and we went around and around about a thank you note for two hours while we're all dressed up, ready to go out for Valentine's Day. It took us several years before we planned a Valentine's Day date again, actually. We were like, well, we're not Valentine's Day people, right? Valentine's Day scares us, <laughs> okay? And I look back on that and I go, okay, who was right, who was wrong? Well, both of us were. Who was in sin and who was pure? Neither of us. The reality is that conflict is a normal part of your life. It's going to happen to you. Some of you, that doesn't really scare you, right? Some of you kind of like conflict, if you're honest. You enjoy mixing it up with people. Uh, I have a brother like that. When we play Monopoly, negotiating over Boardwalk is like the Treaty of Versailles, right? It gets real intense. And we're arguing about it. The first time his wife played Monopoly with us, I'm not kidding, she started to tear up and left the game. She couldn't handle it anymore. That's how much he gets into conflict. Some of you like it, you gear up for it, you're excited. Others of you, it kind of makes you afraid, right? And so you will go weeks and weeks not telling your roommate that he's left a pot of old chili and beans on the counter because you don't want to engage in conflict. And whatever end of that spectrum you find yourself on, my guess is that you don't resolve it perfectly. For some of you, you tend to escalate it. And maybe you think you're always right and you're always revving things up and you're combative. Others of you, uh, you tend to be passive and pull away because you're afraid. And maybe when you should confront, you don't. I think all of us struggle with conflict and it matters as Christians because the way that we resolve our conflicts is reflective of our relationship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus says, John 13, 35, they will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. If our relationships with one another are a primary evidence of the fact that we are following Jesus Christ, then it matters how we resolve conflict. It makes a difference. Do I resolve it in a spirit of forgiveness, seeking the truth, but also seeking to be gracious? Or do I simply say, you know what, we're going to sweep this under the rug? Or do I say, I'm going to beat you at all costs, even if it means playing dirty? Which direction do we go? As we look at the early church, as we look at the apostles, it's interesting. We see that they did experience conflict. In the passage we're going to look at this morning in Acts 15, we're going to see these two great men of God, and they're going to butt heads in a pretty big way. They experienced conflict. Jesus experienced conflict. Now, Jesus, when he experienced conflict, was always right. All right, if Jesus disagrees with you, go ahead and back down. Okay? But nobody else is that perfect. Barnabas and Paul are not perfect men, and yet they knew that there was a time to fight. There was a time to stand up for things that were important, right? The passage we looked at last week, the Council of Jerusalem, both of these men say the grace of God in Jesus Christ is something worth fighting about. 
And here in this passage, they both have an issue that's important to them and they fight about it. And yet also we're going to find they sought reconciliation and they saw God work even in the midst of that conflict. And so we want to look at this passage and go, here's two guys who fought when it mattered. And yet in the grand scheme of their lives, handled their conflict in a way that honored Jesus Christ. If you are not in a conflict right now, the odds are good you will be soon. Some of you are, right? You've got a family member, maybe a parent, and you've got a disagreement, whether it's about money, about your grades, about how you spend your time, about what your major is, and it frustrates you, and you're either real combative about it, or you're passive about it, or you're tense about it. Maybe it's with a roommate, or a boyfriend and girlfriend, and you're struggling with conflict. And as we look at this passage, I want to ask, how can we approach those things in a way where we say, I don't need to be afraid of conflict, but I want to look at what is God doing in me, through me, in the midst of this trial? And how can I resolve it and work toward resolution in a way that pleases him so I can reflect Jesus Christ? All right, so let's look at Acts chapter 15 again, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. All right, so the first thing we see is this, even godly people disagree sometimes. As I mentioned, here's Barnabas and Mark, two of the pillars of the church, and this is a sharp disagreement. It says it was such a sharp disagreement, they had to part ways. All right, that word in Greek for sharp, it, it refers to like a knife. All right, this is a stabbing, this is a shooting disagreement, folks. This is the kind of disagreement where they say, we can't even work together anymore. All right, these guys were close companions. This is coming right on the heels of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas had gone all over Asia Minor. They'd proclaimed the gospel. They'd seen churches grow. Then they'd come into Jerusalem and they'd fought together for the grace of God. And now as they're about to go out again, they have this dispute. These are close friends. Maybe you've experienced that. Someone you loved dearly that all of a sudden you have a disagreement you can't get over. I had some friends in college that decided to room with their best friend from high school. Maybe you've experienced that. You think this will be so fun. Right, we'll have slumber parties every night. We'll eat popcorn together. Ah, oh, it'll be just awesome, right? And then you get there and you realize this person's different from me, right? Maybe I'm a morning person and she's a night person. Maybe my values are studying and his values are partying. I didn't know that he likes to eat crackers in bed while watching Downton Abbey and that bothers me, Right? <laughs> And you begin to have these separations with somebody that you were close to. That's what happens with Barnabas and Mark. And as you look at the passage, it's interesting because both of them have a good point. All right, both of them actually have a pretty good point. Here's what it says. It says, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, but Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Okay, here's what had happened. During their first missionary journey, you see this in Acts 13. These three guys are traveling together. They're sharing the gospel. And all of a sudden, and we don't know why, John Mark decides to go home. And all you see in Acts 13 is it says, uh, John Mark decided to leave them. He went back to Jerusalem. So here they are in the middle of a pretty tense situation. They're facing persecution. They're fighting for the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. There's three of them together. They've got each other's backs. And then Mark says, see you guys later. I'm going home. 
and he goes to Jerusalem. We don't know why. Maybe he got scared. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he had a tummy ache. We really don't know what was going on, but he decides to leave. Now, when it comes time to pick a team for the next journey, Barnabas says, let's bring along John Mark. Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. He deserted us once. He's going to do it again. Some of you may have gone and seen the new Hobbit movie that came out over uh, Christmas. Okay, yeah? All right. One of the things you see as you watch that movie is as they're assembling a team, remember the, the dwarf leader, Thorin? He doesn't want to take Bilbo. Why? Because Bilbo just wants to be back at home. Bilbo thinks about his nice little hobbit hole, and he wants to go home. Right? That's what Paul thinks at this point about John Mark. He's probably a wimp. He's probably going to leave us again. We're going to be in a dangerous situation. We don't need this guy. He's got a good point. The best predictor usually of somebody's future behavior is their past behavior. Paul says, no, the gospel's more important than this one man. Proverbs 25, 19 says, like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. You ever try to bite into an apple with a bad tooth? Maybe you've had an injury in your knee or your foot and you don't know when it's going to give out on you. That's John Mark in Paul's opinion. Now, Barnabas says, no, we need to give him another chance. Barnabas is the great encourager. As you look throughout the scripture, remember who Barnabas is. Barnabas is the guy that when nobody would accept Paul, when he first became a Christian, everybody said, look, we can't trust this Saul guy. He used to kill Christians. So the Christians wouldn't let him in. Remember, it says Barnabas brought him in. And Barnabas told everybody, pay attention to him. He is going to do great things for God. And he brings him into the circle of the apostles. And everybody accepts Paul because of Barnabas. That's Barnabas. He's an encourager. And he says, look, give Mark a second chance. Now you find out in Colossians 4, Mark is also Barnabas' cousin. And that probably contributes to this as well. And you probably can hear the tenor of this discussion. Paul going, look, we're not going to bring your little cousin along again. He left us. Barnabas goes, everybody deserves grace. Another opportunity to prove it can be useful. I know it can be useful. Paul says, we can't take that chance. Get somebody reliable. They go back and forth over this. And finally, they can't resolve it. And so they part ways. These are two godly men. Even godly men disagree sometimes. During the first great awakening, a great religious revival in the United States in the mid-1700s, two of the most powerful preachers of the gospel, John Wesley and George Whitfield. John Wesley founded the Methodist church movement. His brother Charles wrote a number of hymns that we still sing today, both devout men of God who believed deeply in the grace of God, proclaimed the gospel all over the world. George Whitfield was one of the great preachers of his generation, perhaps in history. It's said that when George Whitfield got up and said the word Mesopotamia, people would swoon because he said it so well. Benjamin Franklin once did an experiment and discerned that George Whitfield could be heard clearly in open air without a microphone to a crowd of 60,000 people. That's how powerful a preacher. These guys started together as good friends in England, sharing the gospel together. But over time, they had theological disagreements that separated them. Wesley was an Arminian. He emphasized man's responsibility and free will. Whitfield was a Calvinist. He emphasized the sovereignty of God and the election of God's people. They eventually separated. In later life, they reconciled. But here's two godly men wanting to walk with Jesus who disagree on a point. 
and it splits them apart. That's what happens with Paul and Barnabas. Even godly people disagree sometimes because nobody's perfect. And when we look at conflict, I think often we go, wow, why would I argue with another Christian? Why would we disagree? And I think the underlying assumption is that we ought to be good enough to avoid this. And the reality is that you and I are, first of all, finite. We don't understand everything. And second of all, we're sinful. We're not perfect. And so conflict will happen. Think about when you first realized that your parents weren't quite perfect. Maybe it was in junior high. Right Up till then, things are going well. You think they're great. And all of a sudden, you look over in junior high and they drop you off at your friend's house and they wave and they're wearing weird clothes. And you're like, see ya, right? And you kind of slink away. And they make corny jokes, right? I remember being with my friends and my dad making the corniest string of jokes that he learned somewhere growing up in the country, right? We were in the swimming pool and a friend of mine goes, uh, hey, Mr. Morton, there's, there's a couple bugs in this pool. And my dad goes, that's all right. They don't drink much, right? And my dad just thought it was hilarious. And I remember just wilting inside, right? And at some point you realize my parents are not perfect. And at some point as we grow, sometimes the same thing happens when we think about our spiritual mentors and leaders as well. We look at guys like Paul and Barnabas and we go, wow, these are giants of the faith and yet they're not perfect. And eventually we look at ourselves and we look at one another and we say, until we are in the presence of God, conflict is going to happen even among Christians because we are not perfect. We do not see everything as we ought to. We don't understand everything perfectly. And so it happens. And the real question then is, how are we going to respond in the midst of that? Do we run away in fear? Do we say, okay, this is a reality of our life in a broken world. And I want to respond in a way that honors Jesus Christ. If you never, ever experience conflict, it's probably because you're running from it. If you always experience conflict with everybody, it's not because everybody else is a jerk. It's probably because you're combative. And as we walk with Jesus Christ, we begin to realize, look, conflict, it happens, even amongst people who love each other. So what do we do with that? Well, as we move forward in this passage, I think one thing that we see is that God can use even conflict for his purposes. That's a striking truth. God can even use conflict, even conflict that stems from our sin for his purpose. Look at verse 39, second part of verse 39. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Right, so they're arguing, they're having this conflict, and in the midst of this, they decide to separate. What happens? Well, Paul takes Silas. Paul goes back through Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas says, I'm taking Mark. And he goes to Cyprus. These two guys go separate directions. Now, on the face of it, you go, that's terrible. That's a church split. But what's the sum result? Now you've got two teams of evangelists spreading throughout the ancient world, sharing the gospel. Now, let me show you. I showed you this map of Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey last week. And I apologize, it's a little tough to see from back there. If you see, they're starting again in Antioch. First time around, they went here to Cyprus and they went up into this area of Asia Minor, uh, back around, and then they sailed back to Antioch and eventually they found their way, here's where Mark left, by the way, back down to Jerusalem. Okay, the second time around, what happens, it says Barnabas takes Mark, they go to Cyprus. Paul grab Silas, and they go up here. This is where Syria and Cilicia are, and eventually to Lystra and Derby. And eventually what happens is Paul and Silas make their way all the way off of this map over to Ephesus, Thessalonica, Philippi, a number of other places. 
Okay, these two guys go separate directions. And yet as a result of it, Paul is able to expand the work of Jesus Christ further west. He doesn't ever go back to Cyprus that we know of. He doesn't ever go back to some of the areas here in southern Asia Minor, as far as we know. Barnabas and Mark take those areas. It doesn't mean that the fighting was good. Over and over again in his letters, Paul will command people toward peace and reconciliation. But it means that God uses the conflict to divide and multiply their ministry. Anybody in here uh, have shoes made by Adidas? Adidas, okay. A few of you guys, okay. Puma, anybody have Puma? Oh, wow, more of you. I'm surprised. Okay, so Adidas and Puma, they are two of the biggest shoe manufacturers in the world, right behind Nike and Reebok in terms of sales of shoes. You've got Adidas and then Puma. A lot of people don't know, Adidas and Puma are actually located in the same German town. And in fact, they were founded by the same family, two brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dossler. Nice names, aren't they? Okay, so these guys founded a little shoe company, early 20th century, and they're working together. And Adolf is really a true shoe man, you might say. Right? He's always tinkering with the shoes. He's in the workshop making the shoes better. Rudolph is gregarious, outgoing. He's the salesman. And they're all living in this little factory together with their wives and their children. And over time, that begins to irritate the other. And they get into conflict. I don't like your wife. I don't like your wife. I don't like the way you're always sitting here working on the shoes. We need to sell them. I don't like the way you're always out there while I'm working on the shoes. And they begin to fight. At differing periods of time, they both accuse the other of being a spy during World War II, got each other arrested, and eventually they pick up. I'm not kidding. Okay, eventually these guys pick up, and Rudolph picks up, and he moves across the river, and he sets up his own little shop. So now you have these two shoe manufacturers directly across the river in the same town. Half the town goes to work for Adolf's company, which we now know as Adidas. And the other half goes to work for Rudolf's company, which he eventually called, or originally called Ruda, but decided that didn't sound as cool, so changed it to Puma, right? And they split up. And these companies grow. And business experts look at it and they go, actually, it's this rivalry that causes them to grow and grow and grow, right? Because they're competing for the same market, trying to make their shoes better and better and better, trying to expand their sales territories. And they develop these huge, massive shoe empires because they couldn't get along. Isn't that interesting? It's a classic instance of sometimes conflict can produce this multiplication. Now the world has lots of shoes, right? Doesn't mean the conflict is good. It means that God is bigger than it. Paul and Barnabas fight. They clash in a major way. And yet, even in the midst of it, God is working. Saying, I'm going to do something that's even greater than you know out of this conflict. I'm aware of at least one large church in a major city here in Texas that came from a church split from another large church. And on the face of it, you go, man, that's just, it's sad. And it was sad. And yet, God used it to spread his word to different corners of that city and allow it to flourish and grow. As you are engaged in conflict with a roommate, with a parent, with a friend, constantly be asking yourself, what is it that God might be doing? Not only in terms of the gospel, but in terms of who I am. What is he doing in my character? Is he shaping me and molding me to be more patient perhaps, to communicate better, 
to learn to forgive? Is it maybe that God is saying, this is a time in your life when this conflict has gotten to a level where you need to part ways even from this person, at least for a period of time, and move to another place and begin to serve me there or go to another ministry and begin to serve me there? What is it that God might be doing in your life, even as you seek reconciliation, even as you seek to be humble, and as you are humble to go, where am I in the wrong? What is God doing? Because he's even bigger than the conflict. And I can tell you in the time that I have been an adult in particular, I've had conflicts even here at this church with staff members, people who serve with me had conflicts with those in ministry and other organizations at times. And it's been painful. And I've had to pull back and go, what did I do wrong? My initial instinct, if you're like me, your initial instinct too is to go, why is that person so wrong? Wrong, wrong, wrong. In every way. But as God begins to work, he uses those things to shape me. To strip away some of the sin strip away some of the pride, and to change me if I will listen to his spirit. In some cases, he's used them to adjust to the course of my ministry, to make me begin to think, what else is it that God might have me do because of things I've learned in the midst of conflict? Be open to God's work because he is bigger even than our sin. And although our sin is not good, God often uses conflict that seems unavoidable and unresolvable to further his purposes. God can use the conflict for his purposes. The last thing we see as we look at this passage is this, that God also restores relationships. He's in the business of restoring relationships. Now, we don't see it in this passage. What's interesting is Paul and Barnabas split. The rest of the book of Acts follows the career of Paul. He goes on a second missionary journey, on a third missionary journey. We never hear from Barnabas again. In this book, we don't know what happens. We don't know what happens to Mark. And yet, we see that reconciliation happens later in the lives of these men. And I love this, 2 Timothy chapter 4. As Paul is about to die, he's in a jail cell about to die. He knows he's going to be executed and he's writing to Timothy. Look at what he says. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Look at that. This is 20 years later. Paul sitting in a jail cell, about to die. And he says, the one man I want with me is Mark. Mark who deserted you? No, Mark who's been faithful. We find in the book of Colossians and Philemon, the two other places that Paul mentions Mark. Those books are written at the same time, Colossians and Philemon, and Paul sends them. We find that there's a few people with Paul, one of whom is Mark. Mark comes back. Seems like God used this conflict in Mark's life to convict him about his need to be steadfast, to persevere, to be faithful. So at the end of his life, Paul says, I want Mark. I want him with me before I go to my execution. Paul does mention Barnabas again in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He talks about Barnabas essentially as a co-laborer for the gospel. Reconciliation is always possible. It's never too late. 
And God is always working to make that happen. See how he does this? He uses this conflict to spread the gospel and then he draws these men back together to say our greater goal is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can set aside these differences and recognize he's called us to different ministries but to the same task, to preach the gospel, to follow Jesus. I read an article a couple of months ago about two very popular preachers of the 20th century. Charles Stanley and his son, Andy Stanley. Some of you know those names, some of you don't, but these are two men who are well-known in the Atlanta area and around the world. Charles Stanley, throughout his life, he's 80 80 years old, has written 40-plus books on the Christian life. Andy Stanley, a number of others. But what a lot of people don't know is that these men pastor two different churches on opposite sides of Atlanta. And the reason it came to be that way Andy Stanley was serving in his father's church and had started a satellite of his father's church. And this is all in the article. Talks about how Charles Stanley experienced a divorce when his wife left. That created a rift between Andy and his father. And ultimately, Andy went out and started his own church. There's two men, father and son. Huge conflict. Shouting matches in the driveway. Went their separate ways. Andy starts a church, other side of town. It flourishes and flourishes and grows and grows. And yet it's interesting. Reading this article, Andy says, in all of that time, though, my dad kept inviting me to have lunch with him every week over chips and salsa. He said sometimes we'd just sit there because we didn't have anything to say because we were so angry. But week after week after week, he pursued reconciliation. Until it got to the point, actually just this year, Andy released a book called Deep and Wide in which he talks about the things that contributed to his spiritual development, first and foremost, the faith of his father. He stood up at his father's church and gave a tribute sermon on his father's 80th birthday. Two men support each other's ministries, pray for each other's ministries, and God has turned a church that was a few thousand people into thousands of people worshiping across that city. Was the conflict good? No. Were both of them in sin? Yet. Is God greater than that? You bet. And can God produce reconciliation even out of the seemingly hardest situations? Absolutely. My guess is that there are some of you right now that you are engaged in what seems like a hopeless conflict with somebody. You're never going to be able to get your parents to understand anything that you say. And you're angry. You see no solution to that roommate situation other than to move somewhere else. Trying to figure out if you can break your lease in January. You have a friend that's betrayed you. And you say, this this is hopeless. The message of the life of Paul and Barnabas is it's never hopeless. Reconciliation is possible as long as you're breathing. And as long as both parties are humble and seek reconciliation before the Lord. So how do we respond? When we face conflict that's unexpected, that we can't seem to get out of, a few thoughts. First of all, recognize that reconciliation comes from God and Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us 
the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What is Paul saying? You and I were all once enemies of God. God is the king of reconciliation to the extent that he said, even though you were an enemy of God, he gave Jesus to reconcile you and me to God. And Jesus set aside his rights and he died on our behalf and he rose again so we can be reconciled to God. And so it is always possible to seek reconciliation because the spirit of God lives in us. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and allows us now to have reconciliation with God. It may be you don't have that reconciliation with God this morning. And you need to know that true reconciliation with him, with others, comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Because God is the king of restoring broken relationships because he's restored it with those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so now our lives ought to bear the imprint of God's love and reconciliation with our fellow Christians and the world around us. And we're empowered to do that because he's given us his message and he's given us his spirit. So as you approach conflict, pray for reconciliation. Pray that the God of peace would bring peace. Before you even approach the person and you get angry about the dishes in the sink, about the blouse they didn't ask to borrow, about the parent whose plans for your life vary dramatically from yours, before you even approach the person, you pray, God, soften my heart. Show me where I'm wrong. Show that that person where he or she is wrong. Soften our hearts, bring reconciliation. You pray and you pray and you pray. And then be open to what God may be doing. Is God trying to transform me through this? Is God trying to show me a new path? Is God trying to work in a way that's even greater than this conflict, even bigger than what I see? And pray he'd help you see that. And then lastly, actively seek forgiveness and restoration. Actively seek it may mean that you have to go to somebody and you have to apologize. The way that I spoke to you, you may have to say, was wrong. Maybe you have to tell someone, yeah, some of the things that I did were hurtful and that's what generated this conflict. And it may be you have to go to a person and say, some of the things you did to me were hurtful and yet I forgive you in Jesus Christ. And we're going to seek reconciliation. We're going to seek restoration because we serve a God of reconciliation, who's greater than our conflict. And we recognize that even in our finitude and in our sin, those things will happen. We want to resolve it in a way that demonstrates the love and the reconciliation that God has extended to us in Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. As we sing and as we finish up, let's continue to process some of these issues and ask yourself, is there somebody even this morning, even this afternoon that you need to go and reconcile with? to seek peace with the power and the message of the God of peace in Jesus Christ. Your love is indeed strong. It's stronger than our sin. We praise you that you have reconciled us to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask then that we would move out into the world in a spirit of reconciliation. I know that there are those among us even now who know of a relationship that needs reconciliation and forgiveness. I pray you would provide that. I pray for each of us, let us ask what you may be doing in the midst of 
these trials and challenges and conflicts that we go through to make us more like Jesus Christ, to lead us in the direction you want us to go. We thank you, God, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week.